ground rules forbidden to mention how long it has been? Well, I mean, sure. Okay, fine. But you know, I've done a lot in the time. Oh, shit. Broke the rule. <laughs> <laughs> we are forbidden to mention Omicron. It's all Greek to me anyway. So, uh, <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are some interesting things adjacent to that. I mean, I think adjacent is fine. I think it's just okay, like fine. trying to avoid the whole small talk like, oh, so much has happened. The world has gone to crap or whatever. So I'm just going to launch it an anecdote now. So what happened was, I think we mentioned this in the last episode that I was going to spend essentially a whole month in the Netherlands. Oh, yes, actually. That is a good point. That's how long it's been. <laughs> yes. So I did spend the whole of December, essentially. I mean, I flew off at 7th December and I was there till the New Year's Eve. I was supposed to be there longer, but the old uh -huh. word happened. The old word changed things a lot. So this is the funny thing. I was supposed to be there for about three-ish weeks and then spend another two to three weeks in the UK, mostly for work. I was there visiting the Natural History Museum in Leiden. And so week one, I drop in, acclimatize, get down to the sort of nitty-gritty of working. Middle of week one, my plan was sort of taking slow because I had three weeks, right? Mm -hmm. Three weeks, there's lots of museums in the Netherlands. I think the Netherlands, among all the European countries, has the highest number of museums, which is saying something. I don't know about number, but density for sure. Oh, yeah. So, lots of important museums to see from the common stuff at like the Rijksmuseum or the Rembrandt, the Vermeers. And so, middle of week one, I was taking it slow. I was spending the morning bird watching in the afternoon because I finished a bit late. So I decided I'm not going to go to a big museum in Amsterdam. I'm just going to stay in Leiden. I'm going to go and visit the Windmill Museum. Oh, yes. It's the Netherlands. It's full of windmills, right? It's just this one really tall windmill in the middle of the old town. It's beautiful. It's nothing to write home about. So it's a pretty decent museum, right? You climb up the windmill. You can see a vista of the whole of Leiden from the top. The moment I step down onto the ground floor, which is where the admissions counter is, the lady says, Oh, so how is it going to feel like this being your last museum on your trip? I'm like, wait, what? In the time it took me to go up the museum and down the museum, the Netherlands went into complete lockdown. And I had no idea. <sighs> they literally completely shut everything down. So everything except supermarkets and essential stores was shut. Museums, all shut. Everything closed. So you could still travel locally. There was no like sort of movement restriction order like the Australians had at the height of their lockdown. But it was like, what the hell am I going to do for three weeks or two and a half weeks at that point in the Netherlands? So what did you actually What do? did I do? Gosh, so you pivot, right? I was still working. I had half a week left to finish working at Naturalis. So I still based in Leiden. But essentially, I figured since local travel is still doable, right? the trains are still running, the buses are still running, I would just wander around the cities and look for birds. Wander around cities plus look for birds. So, you know, two things, right? So, I mean, there are some beautiful old towns in the Netherlands, right? Yeah, it's, of course. It's an old country. I went to Den Haag, walked past the Peace Palace, walked around Amsterdam for a week or two. I didn't go as far south as Maastricht. I wanted to visit Maastricht, actually, but couldn't find the energy all the time. You know, I mean, Maastricht is very interesting because not just of the history, it featured in a big way in the First World War and maybe the Second as well. Anyway, but also because paleontologically it's very important. One entire era is called the Maastrichtian because of all the fossils that were found in Maastricht. Big shame I couldn't go into the fossils. I walked past the Maritzuis in Den Haag where the girl with the polyering hands, I walked past the outside of the building, couldn't go inside. You make the most of a shitty situation. I cancelled my entire UK like so because cases were just getting a bit hairy there. So yeah, that's my entire December. Looking on Wikipedia, are we talking about like the Maastricht formation? 
Yes, the Maastricht Formation, yes. I see, okay. So, okay, this is the funny thing. So, I mean, it was interesting because I think this is my first time spending winter in Europe. Okay. All my past trips to Europe have been in spring, usually late spring, where it's cold but not entirely miserable. Winter is something else in Europe. Holy shit, it's cold and it's deathly miserable. I'm trying to remember. You had one winter in the US. The US, but not Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the northern, northeastern US. Right, yes. I spent at least one winter in the northeast, yes, in Connecticut. Where, you know, Connecticut is coastal, but that winter was characterized by two major storms, like Sandy and, and Nemo. Right, okay, yeah. It was so it was the, a little bit of an atypical... It was the year season. of Sandy, yes. It was the year of Sandy, that's right. But yeah, obviously, since all the museums are closed, I went around looking for birds. Uh-huh. And that usually, in the Netherlands at least, means tramping around farmland, <laughs> looking for geese, usually. It's goose season. And yeah, it was just foggy and grey and misty and raining the whole day. I got drenched multiple times, which also didn't help my optics because my binoculars snapped right in two. <laughs> I'm just going to say, I think that's just the Netherlands, which is notoriously <laughs> rainy. No, the UK is the same as well, right? The UK is notoriously rainy. Yeah, you know, they're both on opposite sides of the channel. Yeah, I'm just thinking, I mean, obviously, I've spent a lot of time in Germany and the time I spent in Spain was more spring, although it was an unusual spring in that there was snow in April. Okay. In Spain. Well, a friend of mine who lives in Western Germany, we're talking at the same time, he was saying, yeah, weather there was miserable as well. <laughs> yeah, I think you're looking at. It's a combination of like the fact that you're talking about two notoriously rainy countries. Well, it's the effect of the North Sea, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Both countries bordering the North Sea. It was fascinating. It was interesting because I tried to get around as much as I could. And you know, I mean, gosh, the big contrast between Albuquerque and the Netherlands. What a contrast where, you know, Albuquerque is built for the car. Many Southwestern American cities are built for the car. LA is built for the car as well, right? Because a lot of these cities only really made it big in the sort of post-car era yes. when there was a huge push of people. And so I'm just looking at my step count. I walked 10,000 steps every single day faithfully in the Netherlands. My whole of December average daily steps 9,998. This is something interesting because I'm sure people who work in like, you know, urban studies or mm-hmm. human urban geography planning. or urban planning, transportation engineering, maybe less so for transportation engineering, but urban planning in general have definitely looked into this. But there is the most salient example in my mind, at least, is probably a city like Berlin. The reason Berlin sticks out is, okay, if you look at your typical medieval or even like classical era, European city. I'm going to go with medieval because that's just what I'm more familiar with. Because Freiburg obviously is a medieval city. Edinburgh, I guess, is it? I've never been to Edinburgh, so I can't comment. Oh, Edinburgh is very walkable. I love Edinburgh so much. Madrid is not medieval. Well, depending on how you look at it. I mean, Madrid had its heyday probably around, I want to say the 16th century. Edinburgh is 15th century, so eh, thereabouts. Anything in that time period, right? The primary factor is really anything before rail. Yeah. Because before rail, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about the classical era, medieval era, renaissance, whatever. Because then your two primary constraints are... Horse and feet. Yeah. Within a city, you get around on a feet. Between cities, you get around on a horse or on feet. And that distance and time scale, it doesn't really matter whether you're on a horse or on foot. It's just as far as you're concerned, between cities... You're just like in a kind of liminal space. To be fair, right? Albuquerque is not a young city. It's a very old city. Same as Santa Fe, 
it goes back to Spanish colonialism. Right, but you're looking at the prime the sprawl. I'm looking development. at it, right? it's not just the old town, but the sprawl. Right. The thing is, yeah, you're looking at like the prime kind of like when did this city as it is currently kind of like physically constituted? constituted. Like when did that happen? So I remember being in Granada and there is in the city center, and Granada obviously is like a medieval city. Near the city center, there is actually a sign. It's basically you're in the city center and then there is like a road that goes down. Actually, in this case, it goes up. But there is a road that like goes up the hill that the Alhambra is on. Yeah. Or actually more like where the Jewish quarter is on, strictly speaking. Because the Alhambra is like separated from the rest of the city center by like river. I'm trying to recall. But I think like a river. So it's actually across from the Alhambra, which is where the Jewish quarter is. So there is a road that turns out from like the city center and it goes up that hill. And there is a sign at the entrance of that road saying, don't drive in here. Road narrows to 1.2 meters because it's for horses. Yes. And later on, I had one heck of a trip in Granada trying to find my hostel for various reasons that we won't talk about here. But it's like you look at the instructions on the hostel, you know, like how to get the hostel directions. And like, they're talking about like, okay, go up this road and then on this road, turn right or whatever. And it is a road with a name. And this road had steps on it. Right. I mean, <laughs> you think about it and you're like, on the one hand, especially in a place like Singapore, right? You're very conditioned. Like, if the road has a name and it shows up on like a map, it should be vehicular. This is an old city that was built for humans and horses. Yep. Pretty much. So like, of course, why not have steps? Yeah. I mean, to be fair, Singapore's a weird place because obviously Singapore has developed well after the car became yes. big. And yet, a lot of the urban development was, well, not consciously, but I mean, the MRT came much later as well. But at least there was some consideration paid to connectivity by public transport. Yes. Buses especially. So Granada is one example. It's very salient, obviously. But the other one that I brought up originally, Berlin, it's unusual because, right, of all the major European cities, it is the one that really, really developed in that space between the rail, between the advent of rail, and I guess like complete commoditization of cars. And so Berlin has a very strange scale to it. Have you been there? No, I wish I had. I was actually tempted to go to Berlin because, you know, if everything is shut down in the Netherlands, just go out to the Netherlands, right? But, you know, all that travel permitting and all that rubbish, getting the certificate of vaccination authorized and all that stuff. I figured, you know what? Just save myself the trouble. Stay in the Netherlands. There's plenty to see anyway, even with the museums closed. Berlin is interesting because, I mean, if you think about like, without going to, you know, all the geopolitical factors and everything, facts that it's kind of, I mean, it is the capital of Germany, right? But really, like, where Berlin came to prominence was kind of as the capital of Prussia. Yes. And so you're looking at that time period, like late 19th century, which is kind of exactly when rail started to become a thing. But also, what we think of as the boundaries of Berlin today, that was, in a sense, Berlin overnight became physically the largest capital in Europe because they just decided, I think in 1921, to be like, hey, we are basically redrawing the city boundaries. And now this whole area is now Berlin, is basically what happened. 
And you kind of have like the thing where it's many separate settlements in close proximity. And now they are all, okay, you're all one city now. Yep, live with it. (laughs) Yeah, plus most of that development happened just as rail was picking up, right? So you end up with a situation where from station to station, right, from like point to point, the distances are on the scale of trains. But once you get out of the station and you walk, that's on the scale of humans. Yes, this is the model that you see in cities across or in countries across the world, right? You have the UK, for example. Cities are eminently walkable. Japan, famously as well. But I think the difference is that if you look at the UK, right, most of the cities, they develop either well before or well after this epoch. There are very few cities I can think of where their heyday is literally the interwar period. So the point then becomes, it's less sort of when the cities develop, but more like the conscious planning that has gone into place to make sure that cities are walkable within the city and commutable between the cities. Yeah, I mean, I think in the case of Berlin, I don't think there was much planning. It's just what happened. But you know, I mean, you contrast that with Albuquerque, with New Mexico, right? I have a fast train that takes me from here to Santa Fe. Mm -hmm. Within the state, that's the only sort of semi-decent sort of train system. The Amtrak will take me to Las Vegas, New Mexico, will take me to a few other formerly important railroad towns in New Mexico, which are largely sort of well past their heyday. For me to get from Albuquerque to Los Angeles is a huge pain in the ass. Think of it this way. When I did my big US tour in 2019, late 2019, in order for me to get from Tucson to Albuquerque, I had to take the Amtrak from Tucson to El Paso and then change to a Greyhound bus. Right. Now, if you're talking about intercity travel, that's a different consideration. It's slightly different, but you know, the train network in the US is so horrible. And then oh, yeah, it's really bad. within many of these Western cities, the walking infrastructure is just not there because the cities are built around these enormous roads that does not facilitate walking and everything is so far apart. So, I mean, this is the sad thing. When I was gone, the cinema that's in the downtown area closed. Okay. And so now the only cinema is in the uptown area, which is like 45 minutes away and another 15 to 20 minute walk from the bus stop. Mm. <laughs> it's not pleasant. And so if you don't drive in a city like Albuquerque, you're screwed, essentially. It's just not geared towards human movement at the walking scale. Yeah, I think... And it's very jarring. The other thing that occurs to me is, look, if I want to go bird watching in the Netherlands... I found myself in the middle of some godforsaken field staring at a great bustard and I got there on foot. This was in the slightly weirder part of the Netherlands. Was it Flevoland or north of Flevoland? The slightly weirder part? If you're talking about Flevoland, the entirely reclaimed part, yeah, I guess that's weird. <laughs> Flevoland is weird. It's near Herenveen, which is, gosh, I don't even know what this place is called. Anymore. Anyway, the Netherlands is a very weird place. You cannot turn anywhere without seeing water, which is weird. I don't know if that... You will have to be a bit more specific. Everywhere, canals and ditches and drains. Ah, okay. It's so much water. Mm -hmm. Climate change is going to mess this place up. I think they are aware. Oh, it's Friesland. Friesland, okay. In the north, yeah. Which a lot of my Dutch friends and German friends say is a very weird part of the Netherlands. Oh, great. You're really doubling down on this weird Netherlands thing. I think weird, also in the sense of the culture, it's a little bit weird. I think also because it's close to Germany. I mean, yeah, but it is distinct. Yeah. 
anyway, I could still get there. I mean, yes, it did involve four hours of travel by public transport, but I was still able to get there by public transport. If I want to go bird watching at, you know, Bosque de la Patio or some of the nature reserve in New Mexico, I need a car because there's just no infrastructure for me to get anywhere. The closest I got to Germany was a town called Wintersreich, which mm-hmm. is right on the border near, I think the nearest big German city is, not quite sure actually, but it's right up against the border. I get what you mean because I mean, when I was in the US and I wanted to hike, I mean, I joined a hiking club for no reason really other than there is nowhere else that you can get out to a national park. Right? Because I don't drive, right? So I joined a hiking club and the deal was that you sign up for a hike, you meet up and then you carpool down. Then in the UK, when I visited London, I also was like, okay, I wonder if I could arrange a hike for myself, basically. I was very confused when I was trying to look for like a hiking guide in a UK bookshop because... Well, they call it walking. They call it walking. And also in the bookshop, you can find it, right? You can find like the walking section. But then when you try and look for stuff on the internet, Jesus, you're just typing a UK walking guide. Right, right. I mean, what (laughs) results do you get? Basically, I bought one of those guides and it's kind of the same problem, right? Like all the options, like the trailhead is basically you have to drive out there. You can take the train, but then it's still a long walk to get to the trailhead. The one exception was Hampstead Heath, which is like in London. That's what I did. Well, the funny thing about the Netherlands is, of course, if you can't get there by bus or by train, there's always the bicycle. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) But this is the thing, right? The Netherlands, the Dutch, holy shit, they're bicycle crazy. And, you know, literally everyone there cycles. Mm -hmm. Their idea of a light cycle is very different from anyone else's idea of a light sort of jaunt by bicycle out. Someone I was working with at the museum was like, oh, sorry, I'm a bit late. The train broke down this morning, so I cycled from work. Where do you live? Delft. He cycled from like the southern tip, not southern tip, but you know, close to Den Haag, right? So the southern part of the Netherlands to Leiden. In terms of distance, how far is that? On foot, that's 21.4 kilometers, four hours by foot. Okay. By bicycle, one hour, 12 minutes. I mean, 21km by bicycle... It's not that bad. If you cycle regularly, 21km is very doable. These are people who bicycle is day of life. And, you know, me living here, not having cycled for a very long time, it was like, I tried. I rented a bicycle for a weekend. I went to look for a stupid goose. It was raining. It was foggy. It was shitting cold. I could not take it. I said, all right, you know what? I'm just going to stick to public transport for now. Yeah, no, I mean, in all seriousness though, when I used to follow professional cycling quite closely, I don't anymore. But there was always a thing about Dutch and Belgian riders, which is that they have this ridiculous tolerance for bad weather. It was always the thing when you're watching, well, back when I was following live cycling closely or professional cycling closely, I think about it now and it's so strange. It was the era of live blogging. Like, can you think about live blogging as a thing before you had the ability to like stream video over the internet? Right. You just go to this media website or whatever and then there will be somebody diligently live blogging the events. And then this happened for WWDC keynotes. This happened for sports. Only The Guardian does that these days, really. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I think only The Guardian, yeah. <laughs> Such a strange thing to think about. But yeah. Whenever I read like race reports or whatever, people will always just comment on like, oh, bad weather, good for the riders from the low countries. <laughs> was it someone Dutch who told me, or maybe an American who told me about this Dutch thing where there's apparently this thing on the windiest day of the year, 
Uh-huh. There will be this race to see how long it takes anyone to get down an 8km stretch of road riding against the prevailing wind. <laughs> I have no comments. I mean, you also have to remember that the pole vault supposedly originated in the Netherlands. There we go, yeah. I can see why. Having been there now, yes, it makes perfect sense. But I mean, the wind there was insane. You know, I mean, it was winter. A lot of rain and a lot of wind. <laughs> so, you know, I found myself in the middle of nowhere, I think on the border of North Holland and Flevoland, staring again at geese because that's all you do in winter. And then, you know, the wind, it was pissing down. It was pissing down so hard, my entire down jacket got soaked. The interior of the down jacket got soaked. So, okay, that's literally the worst thing that can happen. Yeah, there's supposed to be like waterproof. The outer coating is supposed to be waterproof. And then the water just got all the way in. I was completely drenched. I was soggy and boggy. My boots, my supposedly waterproof boots were completely soaked. I was stepping in puddles. And then these Dutch cyclists are just cycling around. Like apparently there's, you know, nothing. (laughs) I was struggling. The wind was so strong. I almost lost my telescope. It almost flew off. It was that strong. So there we go. The Dutch cyclists are made of something else. Yep. The low countries. Yeah, but I mean, coming back to the thing about the accessibility, I think of most places in continental Europe, I think part of it is really just the fact that so much of it is just developed before the car or developed before rail for that matter. That's just what it is. But also, I mean, in America, it's the car lobby. Yeah. It's the fact that the car lobby has a historically very strong impact on how cities are built. That's the thing that really struck me about. I mean, I've talked about this before, probably on this very podcast, but that's the thing that struck me about Freiburg, which is, yes, it is very close to the Black Forest. It is literally like on the edge of the Black Forest, right? The location obviously helps a ton, but the fact that you can really just walk into the forest from the city center, you don't have to do any preparation for like, I am going on a hike today. Right? Nope. You just straight from the city center, you cross a bridge and you're in the forest. I mean, it's like Singapore, right? I can plan to be doing field work in the morning and then be back home in my literal bed by 4pm. Yeah. <laughs> I think, okay, this one may be specific to Freiburg. And I think this is, in a sense, for most people in Singapore, right? Hiking is a leisure activity. Yeah. Right? That you do like on the weekends or whenever. But for Freiburg, it is so integrated into their way of life. Like, it's not a leisure activity. It's just where they go for walks. You want to exercise and go on a run? Yeah, just go and run in the forest. Same thing, I think, in Taiwan as well. Very similar phenomenon there. So, I mean, yeah, this is why a lot of people say they like the charm of New Mexico. It's it's a beautiful state. Mm -hmm. But I cannot see myself living in Albuquerque long term because it's just not the way I expect cities to look like. Or it's not my kind of city, at least. Yeah. New York, I can tolerate. New York is fantastic. For the same reason. Yeah. The Northeast US, right? The major population, Boston. The Boswash, right, essentially, yeah. Philadelphia, actually, as well. Philadelphia, yeah. At least the parts close to the center. These are all areas that developed. Even DC is pretty decent as yeah. well, right? Downtown DC, yeah. These are all places that developed when you had to get around on foot. And therefore, it is easy to get around on foot. Right. And even if a train breaks down in New York City, you could still walk. Pretty much, yeah. It won't be as pleasant. But it's still walkable, right? I mean, unless you're getting from Brooklyn to Manhattan, which is a different story. <laughs> People still do I that, I recently though. checked. Is the L Train Running website is still up? Of course. <laughs> is the L Train Running? Running.com. <laughs> is the L Running.com. I believe there are some others. There was one for the G, I know. 
Oh, G, right. The G okay. is actually even more unreliable than the L. The reason that the G train is allowed to fail so much is really that it's the only MTA service that doesn't go into Manhattan. Right, okay. It connects Brooklyn and Queens. This is my sort of, you know, the contrast I see having spent a whole month in the Netherlands, you know, reminding myself what decent public transportation looks like. Reliable trains, reliable buses, shitty weather. The weather in Albuquerque is way more pleasant in winter. Nonetheless, I also passed through LA on my way to the US earlier. LA is just another one of those places where how do people get around without a car? They have like trains and everything, but they're terrible. They don't. They just don't. I mean, I've never been to LA, but part of the reason, honestly, is that as a city, it actually holds very little attraction for exactly this reason. That's fair. Funnily enough, are you a Duolingo user? I was a long time ago, but I've stopped. So Duolingo, in addition to the typical lessons that you do, right? They also have a Duolingo stories now. And I'm not sure how much they change from language to language. I know that for Spanish and German, there's a lot of overlap. The idea behind Duolingo stories is instead of having like a set of questions in the context of a lesson, you have a kind of dialogue with a little bit of narration. Okay. Right. And it's supposed to, I guess, help you see more stuff in context as opposed to typical language learning issues that you tend to learn stuff in isolation and things like that. One of the Duolingo stories is literally about LA traffic. Ha! Yes. Yeah. I mean, essentially the premise for the Californian sketch, the recurring Californian sketch at SNL. Yeah. I think the story goes something like Duolingo has this cast of characters. One of them is Oscar. And it's literally right. like Oscar. The owl, right? No, the owl is Duo. Oh, Duo. Sorry. Duo is the owl. But they have like a cast of characters that recur. There's like Bea, Lynn, Lucy, I think. A bunch that I can't remember. So yeah, there is like Oscar is an art teacher. And he goes to visit his cousin in LA. And his cousin is like, okay, I have to go off to work, but I can give you directions to any of the sites that you want to go and visit. Okay. And Oscar is like, yes, I want to see the Hollywood sign. And the cousin is like, oh yeah, that's one hour by car. It's like, uh, okay, I want to see like Sunset Boulevard. And it's like, oh yeah, that's one hour the other way by car or whatever. That's right. Yep. Like that's the story. The early experience. That's the joke, yeah. right? Yeah. Someone is clearly having a lot of fun writing that story. Probably. This is what annoys me about American cities aside from the East Coast cities. It's just impossible to get around. I did have spend enough time in Tucson to really experience what the sprawl looks like. But, you know, from what I can gather, it's more or less the same thing as well. Okay, this is very much a personal opinion. And I think this is something that probably differs based on familiarity. But in Singapore itself, there are parts of Singapore that I don't like to be in. For this kind of same reason, like it doesn't feel like, I don't know. Well, but you know, this is the problem with Singapore. Everything is scaled downwards. I mean, right, in, in a sense, of all the problems. But I think the thing is, if you think about kind of the regional centers, Jurong East, Woodlands, Tampanese, all these areas in Singapore, they have the same logic to them because they are literally planned the same way. Yeah. Like you have a city center and then the kind of neighborhoods kind of like go out radially from that city center. And so it makes a lot of sense. Like you feel that if you get off the train at Jurong East, that landscape is familiar. But even within that, that central plan, you get variations, right? And this is something I think someone was, I was it Bertha Hansen, I don't want to bring her name up, but she was talking about how older neighborhoods in Singapore, 
the shops are more diffuse yes. rather than just like Sengkang where everything is in the center. If you want any other smaller shops, you have no luck, right? You have to go to the center. Yeah. The thing is, okay, I mean, you see this a little bit. Again, the closer you get to the older parts, right? Old being relative, obviously. Well, Marine Parade, Parade is a classic example of old town in Singapore, yeah. In a sense, I think this is also where familiarity comes in. Like with Marine Parade, I don't feel offended by the town planning of Marine Parade. <laughs> and okay, Serangoon is hard for me to say. I'm thinking more of like the harbourfront area. I hate walking outside in that area. It really feels like it's meant for cars. But that's because harbourfront is essentially Correct. industrial area. It is oh. essentially industrial, yeah. But I think there are other places where you can feel like that a little bit. Parts of the West Coast area. Yeah, before the major malls popped up. Right, when it was just IMM and Jurong Point. Right. Before the multitude of malls popped up in the center part of Jurong. You know, it's just two big malls and it felt like walking between the MRT station and the mall felt like crossing through some kind of industrial hellscape. I very rarely go there. I used to visit Jurong Library a lot because it was, had a very good connection. Yeah. So I can't really comment on that. But I think parts of West Coast have that effect as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, West Coast is partly because it's driven by terrain. You're essentially building on a ridge. Interesting. I'm thinking of some place like Buena Vista. Ah, okay. Which even though it has a mall, there are residences surrounding it, like HDB flats mm, surrounding it. Right, the very old Dover flats, yeah. But you don't have that center point and then transport services going that up. That is true. But that's also because of the topography, right? It's a ridge. It forces you to build in a line along the ridge contours. Right. Which is why I'm thinking this is a familiarity thing because, I mean, Marine Parade is also a line. That is true. It's a lot of things. It's also because, I mean, we say old neighbourhoods, right? One of it says even older, but it's old, like colonial old. And, you know, there's Ayaraja, Industrial Park, the old colonial estate in Wessex. I mean, Buena Vista is a very complex area and it's actually a very interesting place. I wish more people looked into because the confluence of sort of historical land use of the site as partly military, partly colonial, and of course, jutting up against more modern land users like biomedical research, Ministry of Education. It makes for a very odd place. It feels almost like, you know, you cross one road and you're in a completely different landscape, right? You cross on Gimbo, across Commonwealth Avenue West, you're at the Star Vista. And it's a completely different landscape. All of that is true. I'm thinking, it's very hard to say. Like, obviously, some places are objectively more walkable. But to what degree, if you think about like how pleasant it is to walk? There must be a way of quantifying this. There must be a way of quantifying. This is a separate question. But maybe orthogonal, I'm not sure. So, I had a meetup on Friday, actually, with some of my course mates from the MCIT program. So, the ones who are based in Singapore. And five of us met, because that's the maximum. Yeah, right. And I mean, we found that we are a fairly international bunch in the sense that we are all people who have lived in at least one other country and always in major cities. So like Hong Kong, Moscow, St. Petersburg. Moscow, oh. I... Boston. Yeah, Boston was represented twice. New York was represented twice. Hong Kong once. So then you start discussing like, oh, how is Hong Kong? How does it compare? How is Boston? How is New York? Right, the kind of thing. And the thing is, most major cities, it's definitely not the case that once you've seen one, you've seen them all. That's obviously not true. Mm-hmm. But there are places where you very quickly understand the logic of it. Yes. There's also that trope of like, the country boy goes to the big city and vice versa. Like the city slicker goes to the country and is like totally like fish out of water. That whole thing. There's definitely a thing where 
you quickly understand how a city works or you don't. So actually, the funny thing for me was Paris. I had a really hard time figuring out Paris. Like, nothing about Paris made sense to me. Really? Okay. I can't really explain why, but one of the strange things, I guess, is public toilets. (laughs) This is how I think you know you're really at home in a city, (laughs) is when you know how to find a public toilet. A restroom, yes, that's right. Right? I mean, in Singapore, you just know, like, any mall will have it. Yeah, McDonald's. There are very few standalone Starbucks in Singapore. That's a fair point, yes. Relative to the US, which is another thing about understanding how it works, right? Because in most places, yeah, you totally go to a Starbucks. In Europe, what I found, the general rule is you go to a department store. Ah, okay. Is the safe bet. And obviously in Germany, at least, some cities in Germany, they actually do have standalone public toilets. Yes, the Netherlands has these public urinals, which is very disconcerting to look at. (laughs) Like open-air urinals, which is like, okay... It's very exposed to say yeah. the least, I think. <laughs> yeah. So with Paris, I never figured it out. To be fair, <laughs> I was only in Paris for about a week. Uh, a week's a long time. Yeah. It was a strange week because I was dumb enough. This was when I just kind of started traveling. I was dumb enough to go to Paris over Easter. That was very dumb. Oh no. Going over any religious holiday to country is going to be a problem. I mean, there are religious holidays and places, like combinations of those that are doable, but Mm. Easter Mm. in Paris is not one of them. Yeah, fair. And I remember that there was one day when I needed to find a public toilet, and I could not figure out where in Paris you're supposed to go to find a public toilet. I literally was going from like store to store, and being like, is there a public toilet I can use? And then like the security guard or whoever will look at me like I'm insane. Yeah, you're very surly with you all of a sudden. Yeah, you're just like, what do you mean? Is this not a question that people ask? Apparently not. <laughs> yeah, I finally found one. I don't even remember where I found it, but there was a entrance charge and it was like two euros or something what? ridiculous. Two euros? Yes. That's insane. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, I, I did not figure Paris out. That's really the thing that I can say about it. Fascinating. There is a logic to cities. A lot of people have written about this, right? But obviously every city has its own quirks, right? I, for one, despise Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. I just do not like the way Hong Kong is organized. I've not spent enough time in Hong Kong to really comment on that. I visit twice, but both times short trips. Do you not think the other weird thing about Paris that, again, I didn't figure out? I'm coming back to this because this is so strange to think about. But Paris obviously has a very strong train system. Yes, they do. And if you think about like the major sites of Paris, Mm -hmm. right? I never quite figured out an efficient way to route myself through the center of Paris. In the same way that, you know, (laughs) again, in many cities, right? When you're visiting, you realize that some stops or some interchanges are the important ones. And you're just like, okay, you know, in Singapore, it's like, okay, Dobie got Orchard, City Hall. Like, those are the places that you're always passing through. And after a while, you're like, okay, if I need to get here, I go through City Hall. Or if I need to get here, I get off at Dobie got and I walk or whatever. In Tokyo, it's Shinjuku, right? Everyone transfers there. It's kind of like that, right? In fact, in Munich, the central stretch is called the Stammstrecke. And what it is, right, is that all the lines for a few stops, they all converge on the same stretch. Mm -hmm. And why that is, is just because those are all the important stops. Yeah. In Paris, I never figured out like where are like the checkpoints. Obviously, there are some, there is that one station where like a million 
train lines pass through right. with like a labyrinthine network of tunnels. Do you know what I ended up doing in Paris to get by? There is that stupid <laughs> tourist boat. <laughs> down the Seine? Yeah, down the river Seine. Oh no, my God. I think it was like, a pass was like 30 euros maybe for three days. And then the thing is, it's a hop on, hop off thing. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and <laughs> because it hits all the major attractions, I was like, let me just, yeah. And that was how I got around Paris. Okay, to be fair, I did this in London as well. Despite London being fairly well connected, you try crossing Blackfriars Bridge in a rush. Well, yeah, that's because you haven't figured out the logic of London yet. That is true. I've spent a lot of time in London, so... Fair. I've gotten <laughs> anyway, very used to it. Cities can be annoying, but yet a city with good public transport is still better than a city that's designed around the car. I just really cannot stand. I'm going to have at some point to learn how to drive, but still, as of now, I am extremely miffed. <laughs> mm. La Hall is the one that I'm thinking of in the Paris Metro, the one that connects to like a million things. Right, okay. I don't know that I'm going to learn how to drive. I'm kind of hoping that I can skip that part and just get to self-driving cars, but I don't know if we'll get there. No, I don't think that's going to mature in time. It's a long way away. Okay, let's wrap this up. Yes. So this is episode 31 of Monkey Mind. You can find the show notes at monkeymind.xyz slash 031. We will see you sometime next month. Let's not make promises. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're busy people. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, bye-bye.